Welcome back to the Band of History. If you haven't heard our first episode, please take a chance to go back and listen. It details the legendary Ronnie Hawkins and introduces the role he played in shaping rock music, the Canadian music scene, and bringing together the members of the band. You can also find more details on that episode by going to our website, thebandpodcast.com. Also, make sure you stick around until the end of the episode. You'll hear about an amazing contest as well as a few other fun things. The Hawks... The Levon Helm Sextet, the Canadian Squires, Levon and the Hawks, or whatever name they used for their post-Ronnie Hawkins endeavors, feature a group of young but reasonably seasoned musicians looking for their footing in the music industry that led to their eventual topping of the rock music pantheon. You have a collection of very young musicians who duked it out in bars, taverns, and clubs in their mid-teens with Ronnie Hawkins all over Canada and in through the southern states of America. They were exposed to more than most people are exposed to in their entire lives. The places, the people, the distinct cultural differences. And I'm not just talking about the Canadian-US differences, but the differences between each state, each province, and each city, all while cutting their teeth to become one of the greatest bands in America. Contextually, you could point to a group like the Beatles, who spent years in Hamburg, Germany as a club band, grinding away at their act, perfecting and enhancing their style and sound before really hitting it big. But when the Hawks went out on their own, it was a good idea. It was time to grow beyond the tight hold of Ronnie Hawkins. The chicks have to leave the nest at some point, and the Hawks decide to leave at the right time. The mid-60s was prime time for what became the iconic band sound. A decade rooted in upheaval and counterculture, the Hawks were practically looking the other way. Not to say they weren't politically quote-unquote progressive, but they were looking at the roots of their favorite sounds, which led them to clearly defining themselves among the acid rock and psychedelia of the era. We wanted to go against the grain as far as the, the flavor of music at that time. We turned it back and went more blues, uh, more roots music uh, oriented. Now, I'm not certain that this was a particular strategy employed by the Hawks. More curiosity in the music, the craft, and the idolization of their favorite musicians. This is why, in my opinion, between 1963 and 1965 is one of the most important phases of the band's history as it gives us information that led to their defining music careers some five years down the road and not to mention wild stories of desperation, shenanigans, and a musical education. As mentioned last episode, the blowout with Hawkins wasn't pretty, but it wasn't exactly surprising. The cracks were already apparent as early as May of 1963. Levon and Robbie had already begun talking about dreams and aspirations as musicians that didn't include Ronnie Hawkins, or being in his backing band. But those late night chats in hotel rooms didn't cement their eventual exit until a few key problems reared their ugly head. First was the money. 
Ben was playing six nights a week at least and barely could scrape by to live above the poverty line. The boys were working hard and Hawkins was starting a family and he stopped showing up for gigs for long stretches of time. Levon later stated that Hawkins' regular absences led to people thinking that the Hawks were Richard Manuel's group as he was picking up a heavy load on the vocal duties. Secondly, they wanted to expand on their musical capabilities. Hawkins was old school, wanting to play rockabilly. Robbie and Levon wanted to go deeper into what was intriguing to them and the other guys, and that was R&B and blues. Levon later stated in his 1993 biography, the Hawk was settling in with his family, and we were interested in different things, from Chicago green to Chicago blues. A very fitting quote to understand the mindset of the band at the time, which led to the third problem, drugs. While Hawkins was a womanizer, a hard drinker, and liked to indulge in pills, marijuana in particular had the Hawk's attention. Their experimentation wasn't welcomed warmly. And lastly, a lot of the problems that drove a wedge between Hawkins and the Hawks was simply their youth. They were young, eager, and ready to take charge of their own musical path. Levon and Robbie wanted to set up a group where everybody had a voice, literally. And they didn't have to play by, in their view, Hawkins' draconian rules. Early 1964 was the actual breaking point. Hawkins had strict rules of no girlfriends at gigs. Reason being, it was harder to attract crowds of young girls to the club if the band was already engaged in relationships. If your girlfriend showed up, the Hawk had a simple rule. You were fined. The fines were steep, too steep for Rick Danko. Whom had brought his girlfriend to a show expecting Hawkins not to show up for the gig that night? To Danko's dismay, Hawkins did show up, and it didn't go over well. The Hawks were out, no longer attached to Hawkins finally free to do whatever they wanted. Now early in 64, without the backing of Ronnie Hawkins and his connections, the Hawks were left without a real plan forward. The band stood Richard Manuel, Robbie Robertson, Levon Helm, Rick Danko, Garth Hudson, as well as Jerry Penfound and Bruce Bruno. Penfound was from London, Ontario who had been hired by Hawkins in 1961 to play horns, mainly baritone saxophone, and Bruce Bruno, who had become an increasingly large presence in the Hawks as a lead vocalist, especially after the Hawk became absent and decided to take along to form a new group. You had seven people who wanted to play music, but also needed to be fed. Their first thought was to contact Colonel Cudlitz to see if he was willing to book the group on their own. Rick and Levon drove over to Hamilton to see Cudlitz and explain the situation. Luck was on their side. Cudlitz also had just learned the Hawks wasn't going to use him to manage his group anymore, leaving a slot open for the Hawks. Also in the back of the Hawks' mind was getting their very own record contract. But they were still very much a backing rockabilly band. They needed to expand their repertoire. Cudlitz booked them for six weeks in Ontario playing Timmins and Sudbury, as well as in Quebec, playing cities like Montreal and various other small town locations. 
Levon sold his Cadillac that Ronnie had helped him buy, and the rest of the group pooled their cash together to buy two smaller vehicles to haul the band gear. They also decided to bring back Bill Avis, a roadie who had managed Hawkins' Arkansas operations of clubs and farms at one point, and was currently based in New Jersey at Tony Martz. Thus, the Levon Helm Sextet began playing their first gigs. Playing Quebec in northern Ontario helped the Hawks grind away, playing in small mining towns to makeshift bars full of blue-collar workers. Cudlets finally got the Hawks booked in Toronto, at Lakota Ore for the first time without Hawkins. The gigs were good. They were making more money in the first few weeks than they did individually in two months with Hawkins. The music scene in Toronto was booming and could be reasonably lucrative. Particularly, Young Street featured a plethora of joints to gig, and the music was fantastic, from the likes of Carl Perkins to Ray Charles. Or you could go up to Yorkville, where dozens of coffee houses littered the streets, and the folk scene was booming, with acts like Gordon Lightfoot, Joni Mitchell, and Neil Young. Additionally, the Hawks were booked to play in New York City at the Peppermint Lounge, a popular discotheque and launchpad for the dance craze, The Twist. Robbie Robertson later remembered the gigs going poorly as the club owners didn't want them covering blues, but they played their regular time slot from 9 p.m. to 3 a.m., earning over 1.2 grand for the week. Not bad earnings. Immediately after, the group left back for Canada, playing residencies in London, Ontario at the Brass Rail, and another eight-week stint at the Concord Tavern in Toronto. Still eager to get into the studio and record, the group was offered a stint of recording time via Roman Records. The group took the studio time in strides as they were figuring out their groove. They covered James Brown's Please 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 as well as some other original jams like Bacon Fat written by Robbie and Garth. Also, later in 1965, they cut two singles Leave Me Alone and Uh Uh Uh, released as the Canadian Squires. Important to note, by this time, Bruno and Penfound had already departed which cemented the five members that eventually became the band. These tracks were produced by former Hawks producer Henry Glover for the New York-based Ware label and were released in Canada in 65 on the Apex label. The songs didn't get very much traction, but the Hawks later went back in the studio to cut originals, Stone I Throw, a take on Go Go, Liza Jane, in another original, he don't love you, and he'll break your heart. Particularly of note, the stones I throw feature lyrics that reference the American Civil Rights Movement, 
was particularly topical and introduced us to the early, subtle political leanings of the band's lyrics. The song also is carried by Garth Hudson's exceptional organ playing. It's worth noting that this is the first song from the Hawks that represent early experimentation into what their sound may look like by the time they hit music from Big Pink a few years later. And it's also important to note that the Stones I Throw is far less rooted in the R&B sound as they're experimenting with instrumentation like Garth's organ. Robbie Robertson later mused to Melody Maker that those records were just some people trying to sign us up. We didn't know what was going on. We didn't have any control over it. They just whipped us into the studio and we had to cut a few songs. We were just doing what someone else was telling us to do. The band still had a lot of searching to do to find their sound, but those early, raw, unbalanced tracks are an interesting insight into their experimentation. While the Hawks were expanding their roots rock sound, they were still noted as one of the best young blues groups around. This led to John Hammond Jr., the son of legendary producer who would help herald talent like Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, Billie Holiday, and Aretha Franklin to take note. Impressed with the Hawks' understanding of the blues, Hammond asked the group to jam on a few occasions. And this led to Levon Garth and Robbie playing on his third studio record for New York's Vanguard Records. Notably absent from the session includes Rick Danko and Richard Manuel, as the record company insists that they use studio musicians. It was a huge opportunity. Not only would they be in the studio cutting an album, they were playing with some of the best blues musicians in the business. People like Charlie Musselwhite, Mike Bloomfield and Jimmy Evans, who had played with Sam Cooke, were part of the sessions. The album became 1965's So Many Roads, and featured some of Robbie's best guitar work to date. later described by music journalist Grau Marcus as all the rough edges, jagged bits of metal ripping through the spare rhythm section. Studio time and songwriting wasn't the only thing that kept the Hawks busy. They were booked to play Marvel High Class of 65, a prom event, as well as make some stops at the Catholic Club in Helena. While eating breakfast one morning, they tuned into King Biscuit Time, radio station KFFA. Surprised it was still running, they heard Sonny Boy Williamson. Not to be confused with the Chicago blues player and singer, Williamson II grew up and played in the South. Williamson was associated at times with Elmore James and Robert Johnson. Williamson also influenced the early blues harp style, recorded successfully throughout the 50s and 60s. You know, we've got a radio station down in Phillips County, Arkansas, KFFA radio station, and uh, serving eastern Arkansas and western Mississippi. The voice of the Delta, 
and Sonny Boy's radio show, The King Biscuit Time, show would come on every day at dinner time, and everybody would listen, of course. While listening to the program, they heard that Sonny Boy was back in town from his recent tour in the United Kingdom. Eager to see if they could find him, they went looking. Not that long after, they found Sonny Boy hanging out downtown, just walking on the sidewalk, and asked him if he wanted to jam. He agreed, and the Hawks took him to the Rainbow Inn Motel in West Helena, where they set up their gear. He didn't talk much at the beginning, but they followed his lead through various songs. After a while, he slowly warmed up to the band, especially after realizing that they could actually play. Something that the Hawks didn't know was while they were playing, Williamson kept on spitting what they believed was tobacco in a can. Well, it wasn't quite that. He had a can, and it was like a spittoon kind of thing, you know, that he would spit in. And I thought, oh, maybe he's got snuff or chewing tobacco or something that he was spitting. And then, um, and at one point, I happened to notice that it wasn't that, he was spitting blood. And I even thought that that was cool. I mean, that I just thought, these blues guys, you know, they're so badass, they just spit blood where they want to, you know. After their jam session, they went for dinner, a local barbecue joint. Williamson was asking what the band was up to, and they explained that they had planned some gigs up north in New Jersey but they'd be interested in playing with Sonny Boy after, as his backing band. However, the good times were broken up after they were harassed by some local cops. But before the night was out, I think the police interrupted us and said, you know, what are you white boys doing uh, here with these black boys? And, uh, you know, uh, Levon said, you know, these fellas are from Canada, you know, maybe this is my fault. <laughs> and, uh, and they just said, well, you know, I bet your family's going to be proud, <laughs> you know. I heard someone else say, well, what would you like us to do? And they said, get out of town. <laughs> so we got out of town. See, they didn't like white guys hanging out with a black guy, and they chased them out of town. The band's history could have been a lot different if Williamson hadn't died a few months later. Now, not to say that they would become his backing band forever, but they did desire playing with Williamson. And while he had just gotten back from a tour in the UK, where he definitely was more popular, the Hawks' history would have been a lot different. Williamson was a blues man to the core, leading the Hawks further down the path. Would they have been able to discover their roots rock sound? Who's to know? But heading north, they played through New Jersey in the Wildwood Atlantic City Summer Circuit, specifically Tony Mart's Night Spot in Summer's Point. It was recommended by Bill Avis, as prior to being with the Hawks, he was working with an all-girls group, dubbed as the Female Beatles. Tony's was one of the biggest teen clubs on the East Coast, it had three large stages, seven bars, 
and could fit approximately 2,000 people. But this is where the tides turn for the worst for the Hawks. In the spring of 1965, the Hawks went into the studio to record some demos to send to various labels in New York. A few weeks later, they were contacted by Eric Schuster, a mobster-like record exec. Ecstatic at the prospects of being signed, Robbie, Levon, and Bill Avis immediately went down to New York to meet Schuster. He was boisterous, thuggish, but was very eager to sign the Hawks. He demanded to bring the remaining members down from Toronto, thus Richard, Rick, and Garth came down to sign the contract. Looking for a second opinion, they went to Henry Glover, the same guy who had helped them cut some tracks earlier on and agreed to take a look at the contract as a favor. Glover said it wasn't looking favorable, the contract was bad, and Schuster would own the guys for a long time. Crestfallen, they still had to go back and fear the reckoning for rejecting Schuster's offer. To say it didn't go well is an understatement. The Hawks left with nothing but a wasted trip. Everyone that they had sent their demos to didn't seem interested, even Morris Levy, an old Ronnie Hawkins associate. The boys headed back for Canada. After crossing the border to pick up their station wagon they left at the Toronto airport, from their quick trip to New York, they were accosted by police. Surrounded by at least a dozen officers, guns being pulled, they were in shock. Without notice, they searched through the Hawks' luggage, detained them, dismantled both their vehicles, and they found a half ounce of marijuana between some seat cushions. Now, you need to understand that finding marijuana in Canada during the 60s was seen as a major offense. There was no difference between marijuana and heroin. It was all the same. How did the police know that the Hawks had weed? Were they set up? The cops thought that they were dealers. Serious business. Locked up in Mississauga, Ontario, not far out of Toronto, the band got released on bail for $60,000, $10,000 apiece, by Colonel Cudlitz and Commodore Hotel owner Jack Fisher. By the next day, the band was all over the papers. Still shocked, Rick Danko thought they were set up. His girlfriend at the time, Christine, was the instigator. A guy who was trying to impress her had tipped off the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, about the Hawks smuggling drugs over the border. But the band still had obligations to play. They had an upcoming gig in Toronto at the Friars Tavern. The place was bustling that night. Everybody wanted to see the now famous druggies play their gig. There was also the fact that Hawkins, with his new band, just a few doors down, was cracking jokes about their drug bust. Bill Avis had secured a retired judge to represent the boys in trial, and the colonel had also successfully had the trial pushed, and had somehow secured the Hawks to travel over the border to continue their commitments to gigs in the United States. While their future wasn't certain, there was a possibility of major repercussions. The band didn't have any other options, though. Oddly enough, 
a lot of the cops who had been involved in the arresting started showing up to their gigs. They even brought their wives, and the Hawks made quick work of trying to make friends with them. The heat was easing and the story about the bust was melting away, but there was still one major obstacle. The one officer who was the key witness in the case against them was very particular about the boys being booked in prison. Levon had a plan. He had been seeing a girl with the name Kathy, who was 16. Levon had her give the officer a blowjob, pretending that she was of age. After admitting she was underage, he disappeared. And while the trial wasn't for a while, the hawk's chances of walking away because of the scheme were looking slightly more in their favor. In August of 65, the Hawks were back in Summers Point, playing Tony Martz, when they got the call. Dylan had heard through Mary Martin, a friend of the Hawks, and John Hammond Jr. about their musical dexterity. Dylan had recently been experimenting with his electric sound, doing some gigs with the Butterfield Blues Band at the Newport Folk Festival. It wasn't well received, but Dylan wanted to press on. And this is where things changed. Dylan wanted Levon and Robbie to play with him. Next week, we will be diving into the band's time with Dylan, their extensive touring on a much larger scale, and much, much more. You know, like I said off the top, the years between the Hawks leaving Ronnie and joining Dylan were an interesting period of trying to work out their sound. They recorded their own material, played on other people's records, and started gigging on their own. While it was trying times, and it wasn't always successful, it was an important era for the Hawks to grind it out on their own. If anything, it cemented their desire to want it even more. It also allowed them to experiment, not just with music, but in life, drugs, women, arrests, all contributed to the wonderful storytelling in their music later that can be traced back to this era. Now before we go, I've got a couple announcements. First, we have an amazing contest to win four official band t-shirts courtesy of Periscope Productions. The contest is simple. Go to thebandpodcast.com backslash contest and fill out the details. All contestants will be entered into a draw, and four random people will be selected to win. As of the episode airing, you have one week to enter, and winners will be announced shortly afterwards. Secondly, we have created a Spotify playlist that covers the amazing career of the band from their time with Ronnie Hawkins, to their session work and studio work with Bob Dylan, their live albums, and their solo careers. Check out our website, thebandpodcast.com slash about to find the playlist. Lastly, I want to give a very special shout out to our first donor of the show, Kenneth Rockburn. Kenneth, thank you very much. We are very humbled by your donation, and we will use the money to make the show even better. Again, thank you for listening to episode two of The Band of History. Please rate the podcast on your preferred platform, 
and share the show with your friends and family. And remember, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Band Podcast. This show is hosted by Tyro Listen, produced by Tegan Chevrier and Tyro Listen, written by Tyro Listen, and researched by Fiona Chevrier and Tyro Listen. The Band of History is also edited by Tegan Chevrier. The Band of History is not endorsed by the band or any affiliated stakeholders. It's intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. All audio clips are registered trademarks or copyrights of the original trademark and copyright owner. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.